Welcome, friends. Go ahead and find a seat and uh, make, make your way back to a comfortable spot. Scoot over and in to make room for others, uh, just in case. I want to invite the ushers to come forward this morning receive our offering as we continue to worship God that way. So, uh, so ushers come forward. Would you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, verse 1. That's page 838 in the Pew Bibles if you are using one of those. Otherwise, we'll have verses up on the screen. So, um, so glad you are here with us this morning. Uh, excited to see you. We are continuing a series. We have a couple of weeks left of this series called The Upside Down Kingdom, where we are looking at... Uh, Really, this, this message of Jesus, it's part of our overall teaching on the Gospel of Luke. And we've kind of, we've framed this series, The Upside Down Kingdom, because we're looking at the ways in which Jesus invites us to belong to the rule and the reign of God, um, to come under His kingship. And, and so we've just finished... Jesus' famous Sermon on the Plain, it's the shortened version of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, and he's, he's really taught about the character uh, of the upside-down kingdom and the ways in which, as you embrace God's rule and reign, he flips your values, and we live these kind of crazy, um, extravagantly loving lives, and uh, looks upside-down to the world. And over the next couple weeks, what we're doing is we're looking at two stories, two examples of how people have responded to this, this kingdom. How... How have they responded to the invitation of Jesus? So, um, with no further ado, we're going to jump straight into the text this morning. So, if you have a Bible, Luke 7, verse 1, read along with me, and we will look at uh, this first example of uh, this response to Jesus' invitation to a kingdom of God life. So, when Jesus had finished saying all of this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. And there, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. And so Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion's friends, uh, when he sent, I'm sorry, when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I tell this one, go, and he goes, and this one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And turning to the crowd, uh, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then uh, the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Well, we're looking at the fact that uh, this upside-down kingdom is actually the thing, the reality that brings the healing and salvation and rescue that our souls and hearts long for, the, the, the rescue, the healing that we yearn for. This, this kingdom of Jesus is answering the question, it is the answer to the question, how will God put the world back together after the mess and the havoc of sin and death and evil? But the question remains, even if that's the answer, the kingdom of God is somehow how God is writing the world, 
how is it that we actually gain access to the kingdom? How do we apprehend the kingdom? How do we embrace it and become a part of it, enter into it? How do we get the healing and power of God to come into our lives such that it rescues us? How does God fix what's wrong in us and between us? And and the answer from the scriptures uh, all throughout the Bible is faith. Faith is the answer all throughout the scriptures. In fact, this chapter that we're looking at, chapter 7, begins with a story of a man who has such great faith it amazes Jesus. And at the end of the chapter, we see a woman who's pouring out love and adoration to Jesus at his feet. And he says, I tell you the truth, your faith has saved you. And in the middle of the chapter, you get the story about John the Baptist's disciples who come to Jesus with a question. They're like, are you the dude? Are you the guy? Or should we expect somebody else to be Messiah? And Jesus has this response, blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. And so what Luke is getting at here in chapter 7 is no matter who you are, no matter where you're coming from, no matter what is going on in your life, where you come from, what you have done, who you are, faith is the key issue. So this morning we're going to take a look at three questions around the kind of faith we see in this story. The first is, just how does faith come? How does it develop? What, like, how does it happen? The second question is, what does it mean? Like, what is this faith? And then, where does it lead us? So, the first question, how does faith actually develop in our lives? Like, does it just show up one day? Like, what, how, how does this happen? Um, the answer in the text, I think, is it comes both naturally and disruptively. So we're going to take a look at the first part, naturally. Um, what do I mean? I, I mean this, that faith, belief, is a virtually inevitable thing for any person anywhere. Um, as you look at the story, it has a few characters. The, the central character, we could argue, is the centurion. And the centurion is uh, a very interesting character. He's, um, he has a dying servant that he cares about. Um, he's not a Jew. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't have uh, access uh, to uh, the, a rabbi, like you would think. Um, he's a Gentile. He's someone from outside the covenant people of God. Um, but he's also kind of like a UN peacekeeper, so to speak. He's kind of like this... Uh, he's, he's like an army captain. He's got about 100 guys underneath him, and he reports to a general, and the general reports to the emperor. So he's just a couple notches away... Uh, from the authority in the empire. Um, But he's not just any kind of peacekeeper. He's certainly there in Capernaum to try to help maintain the peace between the empire and the subjugated peoples. That's his role, make sure things don't go bad here. And yet, he's also a patron to the Jewish people. He's generously helped build their synagogue. He's a fan of the Jews. He's like centurions for Jews. And uh, so this tells us that he's the kind of guy who respects the people he's come to exercise Roman authority over, uh, and he's also equally respected by them. He's a generous Gentile, he respects the God of Israel, and he's well-revered among the civic leaders. Now, um, the civic leaders, these Jewish elders, are mentioned here as this delegation sent to Jesus to represent the centurion. And the centurion has this implicit trust in Jesus. He knows about Jesus, he's come... So he's sent for Jesus. He cares. He, he thinks that Jesus is a trustworthy person. Um, in fact, all the centurions in Luke seem to have this 
interesting faith in God. This one says, I, I believe in that power from God is coming through you, and I want that in my life. And then there's another centurion at the end of the book, the famous John Wayne centurion, right? Who says, surely this is the son of God, right? And, and the greatest story ever told. Like, think about, like, what would that have been like had we casted someone else? Like a, like a Michael Caine, like, surely this man is God's son. You know, like, well, that could have been better. Um, right, anyway, there's just a few different ways we could slice that. But anyways, John Wayne got the part, and so he's the centurion forever. So uh, the Jewish leaders come to Jesus, they reveal their faith, but it's different than the centurion's faith. The centurion has a faith in Jesus. The, the, the elders of the Jewish people have a faith in themselves. Let me show you how this works. Verse 4, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and he has built our synagogue. You see, they, they don't come to Jesus because they have faith in him. They come because the centurion is their patron. And so on one hand, the centurion says, I'm not worthy, but the elders, uh, the Jews come and say, he's worthy. This guy deserves uh, to have the power of God in his life. They're saying, in a sense, this guy deserves to have the power of God come into his life because of his virtue. See, what they're doing is they're revealing their faith. People naturally believe something. They reveal that their faith is really about their own moral goodness and performance. They believe that they can merit divine favor in their lives. Do you ever believe that? Like, maybe, if I wasn't such a screw-up, Things would be going better. Or, why isn't God paying out? Because I've been doing really good. Right? And so we, we tend to base our faith on something. This is the first principle I want us to catch this morning, and that is this. That faith is an inevitability. In other words, you can never disbelieve in God without believing at that same moment just as deeply and as fundamentally as something else or in something else. So you can never disbelieve God without equally believing just as deeply in something else. If you don't believe in God or you don't believe in Jesus, it's not because you don't believe, because you don't have faith. Right? It's not because you don't have any spiritual faith. It just means that you have faith in something else just as deep and just as fundamental as someone who believes in Jesus. And here in Portland, it's, you know, I think, fairly common to say, like, uh, you can't really know about God. You can't really know God. You Christians think you're right about God. But, I mean, no one can really know for sure that they really are worshiping the right God. Which, of course, begs the question, right? Like, how can you know for sure that you can't know for sure? Huh? Like, this is, this is a circular argument. So, um, you know, whether you're asserting a positive claim about the existence and character of God or a negative claim about the existence and character of God, the grounds for that claim is always going to be the same. It's not empirical evidence. It's a faith assumption. You're either rooted in a worldview that says you can't know or a worldview that says you can know, but either way, it's a faith assumption, one way or the other. One of the best um, examples of this is uh, written by uh, a guy named Sheldon Van Auken. He was a friend of C.S. Lewis, and he wrote in his book, A Severe Mercy, the story of his own conversion experience. And he tells, he tells it like this. In his words, he says, I began to see a gap between the possible and the proved. It would take faith to cross it. How? I didn't want to do that. If I was going to stake my whole life on the risen Christ, I didn't want there to be any gap between the possible and the proven. I wanted proof. I wanted letters of fire in the sky that Jesus is risen. Then I suddenly realized, my God, there was also a gap 
behind me as well. I couldn't prove Jesus was God, but by God, I certainly couldn't prove that he was not. This was not to be born. I realized I could, I could not reject Jesus without a great step of faith. But then I began to realize I could not go ahead without a great step of faith. There was only one thing to do. Once I had seen the gap behind me was every bit as big as the gap before me, I went across the gap before me to Jesus. Now, isn't that interesting? This is a fascinating thing. It dawned on him. It finally dawned on him. Nothing was going to give him the certainty of proof. It was all going to have to be a move of faith no matter which way he moved. So that's the first thing about faith. It's a natural thing. We are believers. We believe in something. It takes a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to redirect that faith in something to faith in Jesus in particular. But nonetheless, we are believing persons. So the second thing about faith is that it comes disruptively. Not only is it natural, but it's also fairly disruptive. Um, The centurion does not call Jesus until something is wrong. Did you notice that? Like he's doing his thing. He is building synagogues and ruling, and then all of a sudden there's a problem, and he calls out to Jesus. Um, And so somebody very dear is about to die, and this is usually the case. We often don't send for Jesus until something challenges us until something upsets us. And that's when we begin to ask the big questions. The why am I here? The what is life about? What is the meaning of my life? All right, until something goes wrong. And um, Lewis, for example, again, Van Auken's friend, C.S. Lewis wrote this fiction book called Screwtape Letters. Uh, and it's uh, a story where this senior devil is writing to a junior devil on how to tempt people. It's a, if you haven't read it, it's, it's well worth your time. It's a short read, and it's entertaining and a bit eerie. But uh, uh, this is what he says. The senior devil says in one of these letters, Look, if you have a client, <laughs> a client, if you have a client who is starting to think, maybe there's a God, maybe there's a Jesus, maybe these things are true, maybe the Bible's right, for goodness sakes, do not argue with them. Don't get his reason going. Don't get him to ask the big questions. Get him busy in life. Get him busy in the hustle and bustle. Show him the bus going by. Show him the papers being sold on the street. Keep him busy. That's the ticket to spiritual blandness. Right? Today I might read like, just show him the next Instagram feed. Show him that, like the next season on Netflix. <laughs> we, we binge watch. We don't watch episodes. We watch seasons and sittings. Anyway, so... Um, Maybe that's just me, but uh, <laughs> like the one Portlandia where they like they lose their jobs, their powers cut off because they just watch Battlestar Galactica episode after episode. <laughs> like they haven't showered in months. That's kind of that's us. We get distracted by the busyness of life. That's why we have a very robust entertainment industry because we are distracted people. We love our distractions that keep us from asking the questions about meaning and reality. And if your life is just kind of sort of moving along and you don't have to ask those questions, if things are under control, they're managed, they're easy, you're distracted, you're doing fine, you don't ask the questions. But faith oftentimes comes in a disruptive way. Um, When things begin to be challenging, we begin to ask the questions. Life gets interrupted and oftentimes there's something not very fun. 
It's almost always the way. There, of course, are people who doubt it. There are people who are skeptical of anyone who finds God in a hospital room or a prison or in a tragedy. But why, why disbelieve that? Why would that be inauthentic? See, if there's a God that we're built for, um, then that vague emptiness we feel when things are good would actually become unbearable when things go badly. Um, it it kind of works like this. The, the challenging experiences do not create the need for God. They reveal it. Right? They, don't, they don't create a need for God. They reveal our need for God. See, lightning can, of course, come out of a blue sky, but it doesn't happen very often. It usually comes out of a cloudy sky. And faith and illumination can come out of the blue, but it usually comes out of a cloudy sky. And something goes wrong. And maybe that's the reason for your cloudy sky life right now. Uh, that maybe God wants to use the mess the mess of the world, the mess that sin and Satan have caused in the world. And he wants to use it for your good. He wants to bring about good. He wants to use whatever it takes to connect you to the only thing that will really bring healing and redemption and hope to you, which is a deep, connected relationship with him. Have you thought about that? Well, that's the first point. That's how faith seems to develop in this story, naturally and disruptively. But... What are we really talking about here? When we talk about faith, like what is this thing that we're talking about? What are, what are we dealing with? What does faith mean? A couple of things for us this morning. The first is this. Faith means a new direction for us. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the Holy Spirit redirects our faith from something to Jesus. And so um, it really means a new direction. That saving faith is not just a general kind of I believe, kind of wishful thinking. That saving faith is a particular faith in Jesus for his healing. So if you want to embrace that kingdom, if you want the power of God to come into your life, to set your soul right and bring you hope, then you have to get your faith going in the right direction. Look at verse 8 with me. It says, For I myself, the centurion says, I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. Right? But say the word, Jesus. Say the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus does. He's, he does. This guy has faith in Jesus' authority to bring the power of God into his life, and, uh, and Jesus brings it. Uh, he has faith not only in Jesus' authority, his power to do it, but he has faith in the guy's character, in Jesus' character to want to do it and to be willing to do it. See, when we look at the centurion for a second, we get something about faith. He, he gets it in a way that sometimes we don't. He's someone in authority. He goes, you know what, Jesus, I get how this works. Um, notice that he doesn't describe himself as someone with authority. He describes himself as someone under authority. I'm, I'm a man under authority, right? Because I know it's just two moves from me to the emperor. And if he gets word about what I'm doing uh, uh, with my management of Capernaum and my hundred guys... I'm toast. <laughs> right? That's a bit of a fearful kind of picture. But he gets it. He has delegated authority. But he also has command over a hundred people. And so he believes that Jesus is kind of similar, right? That he has authority from God, that he's connected to God himself, and yet he has command over creation. That he has command over the well-being of his servant. That he has command at his word, and so this centurion grasps who he is and who Jesus is. He goes, I, I'm, a, I'm a shadow of a master, but you are the true master. He gets it. He gets it. I think this is an important aspect for us because look, what, when we talk about 
authority and understanding Jesus' authority, it doesn't always sit well with us. It's Oftentimes when we talk about power and authority and a master, we're talking about something that leaves a sour taste in our mouth oftentimes because what we see so often is people trying to get to the top and pushing else, everyone else underneath. They want to get to the top for their own gain, for their own comfort. Um, the, the musical that came to mind this week as I was thinking about this was um, Les Mis. And the character uh, Tenardier, you remember this guy? So I've got Sasha Baron going up there for us uh, from the newest version of Les Mis. And, um, Tenardier is an interesting guy. He, uh, he's the one who sings Master of the House, right? Keeper of the Zoo, ready to relieve him of a zoo or to... I'm not going to sing it. Pastor Dave would love to. Right, where is he? Anyway, uh, so right in time, I was like thinking he could sing this song for us right now, but next week. Um, you know, what does he say? He says, I'm watering the wine, making up the weight, picking up their knickknacks when they can't see straight. He charge them for the lice, extra for the mice, two percent for looking in the mirror twice. Right? He's this master of this this kind of inn, but he's a master of the house, so he can rob everyone blind. His authority is for his own gain. It's a mockery of a master, and there's really nothing faithful about him, and there's nothing in him that elicits faith from us. And sometimes we have this roadblock to really trusting Jesus because we have this misshapen picture of a Lord and Master. When, when, our, when our picture of lordship and master is shaped by someone like Tenardier, by a, by a vacant father, or by a, 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 a condescending boss, an abusive spouse, we tend to like shy away from this picture of authority because it's not used well. We have a world that doesn't use it well. And yet, Jesus is this true master. And the centurion gets something of the nature of Jesus. He doesn't just trust his power, he trusts his character. See, when our dominant picture of rule and power is shaped by somebody like Tenardier, we flinch from Jesus like a beaten dog rather than trusting in Jesus like the centurion. But he says, I get it. I get that not only do you have power, you have the character to use it for others. That you are not giving to just to get, you're giving to give. See, a faith that is directed at Jesus is not just a faith in his power, but a faith in his character. So this guy knows something about Jesus. He doesn't have a fully worked out theology yet. He probably doesn't grasp that he is the divine son of God, the Messiah of Israel, the Lord of the world. And yet... Power goes out from Jesus and helps the man in his need. So what does that say to us then about orienting our faith in the right direction? Like, what does that say? I find that it's similar to the man in Mark 9 who says to Jesus, I believe, would you just help me with my unbelief? And there's a principle here, and that is this, that that faith in Jesus is not so much about the, the strength of our faith as it is the object of our faith that matters. It's not so much about the strength of our own. I'm just going to muster this strong strength. It's I'm going to believe in something stronger. Uh, When Lauren and I fly in airplanes, we have a little bit of a different experience. Um, (laughs) And uh, 
I love takeoffs and landings. Like, it's the coolest part because that's where something's happening. Everything else is just like, we're just cruising along. Like, I'm into the, like, fun of the takeoff and the landing. I've got the window open and I'm looking out and she's got her eyes closed and she's squeezing my hand, right? For me, it's like there's something going on. For her, it's like there's too much going on. But at the end of the day, while our experience of the takeoff and landing is a bit different, our trust is really actually aimed in the same direction, and, and, and our faith is ultimately aimed in the fact that this plane was engineered well, it was manufactured well, it's been maintained well enough to have integrity in the air, enough so to work and get us up and back down again, okay? in one piece. And so we, we, we demonstrated that faith in that direction when we purchased the ticket and walked on board. Right? So we believed enough to get on the plane, Right? We have a different experience because we have different levels of strength in that engineering and manufacturing, but at the end of the day, it's aimed in the same direction. Now, again, it's really kind of in right now to applaud people for the sincerity of their faith, as if sincerity and really, really believing something deep down is somehow like a trump card to truthfulness. Like, if you really, really believe it, that, that's more important than whether or not the thing that is being believed is actually real. And so... You know, I think about this, you know, continuing the plane metaphor. Again, imagine you have somebody who sincerely, deeply believes that the plane they're getting on, which hasn't been maintained in decades, is not going to have any problems whatsoever. That is just going to be fine. I believe it. I really, it just, it looks like the right plane for me. You know, um, the, see how this works? It's, it's not the strength of the faith as much as it's the strength of the object that really matters. And that's good news for us. Because there's times when it's like, I don't know, Like, I just, I hope this is a true story. I'm leaning into it. You know? That's good news for us. Because who ends up in a better position? The people who who believe enough to step on to the well-maintained plane? Or the people who really sincerely believe that they're going to be fine on the dilapidated one? Who's in a better position? The the nervous Nancys who get on the good plane. How much faith did the centurion need to, call, to, to get his servant healed. How much faith? Enough to call out to Jesus. How much faith do you need? Enough to call out to Jesus. Right? To take a step toward him. Take a step toward letting him be who he says he is. And letting him demonstrate his faithfulness in your life. See, when we orient our trust around his power and his character what we'll often find is the strength of our faith actually grows over time because we see him prove himself trustworthy. See, the object of our trust, Jesus, that's what demonstrates, or dem- uh, determines, rather, our security. But uh, the strength of that trust is what determines our experience of that security. And it's important not to get those two things mixed up. The question today is, which direction is your trust oriented? Where are you aimed? Are you moving toward Jesus? You're willing to take a step and letting him be who he is in each area of your life? You're willing to take a step toward him and what it means to be who you are in your family? To be who you are in the school God's placed you in, in the friend group, on the team? what you think about, where you spend your time, where you spend your energy, what you talk about. Are you willing to move towards him a step at a time in each area? Well, the second thing that faith means 
it's a new foundation. It's a, it's a new foundation for us. Let me let me share with you what that's about. Um, the example of, of the centurion is pretty remarkable. If you look at this guy, he's a virtuous guy. Like, what, what does everybody say about him? He loves our nation. Like, he is not like the typical racist Roman centurion who hates us. He despises us. This guy loves our nation. He, he, isn't, he doesn't extort us. He isn't Tenardier. The guy uses his power for our good. He built a synagogue for us, for crying out loud. This is a virtuous, just, devout man. And virtuous, just, devout people do not happen overnight. He's worked at it. He's been intentional at becoming this kind of person with this kind of character, and yet something's changed. See, the leaders say, he's worthy. Do what he asks, Jesus. But what does the centurion say? I'm not worthy. I don't deserve to be in the same room as you. I certainly shouldn't even have you under my roof. That's how unworthy I am. But notice this. Does he say, I'm I'm not worthy? Don't do what I ask? I'm not going to ask. I withdraw my proposal. I'm not worthy. I'm a slob. You shouldn't even listen to me. Is that what he says? No. See, the leaders say he's worthy. Do what he asks. And if he had said, I'm not worthy. Don't do what I ask. Forget I asked. Even though he would have been disagreeing about their worthiness, he would have been agreeing fundamentally about the terms of relating to God. He would have been agreeing fundamentally about the paradigm of how God's power works in our lives. Do you see that? He would, have, he would have basically been agreeing with their approach to God. What is their approach? It's a paradigm that says this, God's power comes into the lives of the worthy ones. That if you deserve it, God will do something for you. God's power comes into the lives of the worthy, the, most, the morally virtuous. See, to say, he's worthy, do what he asks, or I'm not worthy, don't do what I ask, are virtually the same position, even though they're differing on whether or not he's worthy. So instead, what does he say? He says something really astounding here, and I think this is what Jesus locks in on and says this is great faith. He says this, not I'm worthy, do what I ask, not don't, I'm, don't do what I ask because I'm not worthy. He says, I'm not worthy, I'm nothing, I don't deserve to even have you come in the same room as me, please do what I ask. I'm not worthy, would you do what I ask? Does, does this make sense? Like, uh, uh, What moral math is he computing to get to this conclusion. Like, how could he do this? It makes no sense in any other religion, within any other paradigm, with any other sensibilities or any other understanding. No other philosophy or worldview adds up this way. It actually even contradicts the sensibilities of the human heart. Here's what he's saying. I have completely shifted paradigms. He's saying, I see it on a totally different way. He's saying, I'm not worthy You're worthy. You're all worthy. But I'm going to ask you to bring your power into my life on some other basis than my moral virtue, which is insufficient in your presence. And so Jesus says, you get it. You get it. You get it. In fact, Jesus says, I have not even seen such great faith in all Israel. See, saving faith, and this is key, is not just something... Uh, about simply believing in Jesus in general, saving faith is transferring our fundamental, basic life trust from wherever it is to Jesus. Do you see that? It's transferring my basic fundamental understanding and worth and value and life trust from wherever it is, whether it's my looks, whether it is what you think of me, my performance, my job, my stuff, my 401k, whatever it is, 
to Jesus Christ. Right? He, he had moral virtue, but he shifts it. He doesn't quite understand. His faith is imperfect in a lot of ways, but he's doing it. He's shifting, he's transferring, and Jesus says that's it, and the power of God comes into his life. And later on, we see a woman at the end of the chapter, and she anoints Jesus' feet with a perfume that would normally be worn around her neck, and it comes in a little alabaster jar, and the thing about this thing is it would block the perfume from coming out. You couldn't pour it out, but you would uncork it, and the smell would waft out. The only way to pour it out would be to break it completely. It'd it'd be one use forever. And what's her job? She's a prostitute. In a society that does not bathe every day, owning something that makes you smell better than everybody else is a huge advantage to your business and to your security. See what she's doing? She's saying, "I, I needed this. This was my foundation. I was living my life founded on my appearance and my ability to attract and survive. And she's saying, not anymore. I'm breaking the foundation. I'm pouring it out on the feet of Jesus. And I'm letting you be my foundation. Do you see that? So whether it's you're coming from a place of moral virtue and saying it's insufficient only on the basis of Jesus can I stand before you? Or you're coming from a place where it's something else. So I'm laying down the foundation and letting him be that. So what's so, so foundational for you, so fundamental for you, that if it came out from underneath your feet, you would be utterly lost? Do you have any of those things? Do you have any of those things where, boy, if this friend re- unfriended me, if this friend rejected me, if, if I lost this job, if we lost this house, if my phone had a cracked screen, <laughs> people, people are like, man, we need to take up an offering for your phone screen. I'm like, no, no, it just teaches me to be humble. I honestly was like, I lost Wi-Fi this week and was like, oh, my foundation's cracking. <laughs> I, you know, it's like, what is it? Is there a place... For you, And Jesus says, look, believing in me, having faith in me is not a general kind of thing. It's a specific thing that transfers your most fundamental, foundational sense of self, meaning, mission, and worth from wherever it is to Jesus Christ. But how can we do that? How do we get there? I really think, friends, that we can really only do that when we have seen and actually trust that Jesus has ultimately transferred places with us. You see, the scriptures teach that Jesus Christ has died in our place. Why death? That seems extravagant and brutal. Because this, friends, because he has absorbed into himself what is most fundamentally messed up, wicked, inward, and evil about us into himself and dealt with it in his death. See, 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, Jesus Christ has become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. John the Baptist calls him the Lamb of God, which is a picture of a sponge. Sponges up the wickedness of the world. Read Martin Luther a bit this week. His commentary on Galatians is phenomenal. And I read his commentary in Galatians chapter 3. 
I texted it to my wife at one point and was like, you have to read this. It made me cry. Um, listen to what he says about the gospel, about Jesus transferring with us. He says, whatever sins I, you, all of us have committed or shall commit, they are Christ's sins, as if he had committed them himself. Our sins have to be Christ's sins or we shall perish forever. Luther continues, he says, Isaiah declares of Christ, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. We have no right to minimize the force of this declaration, Luther says. God does not amuse himself with words. What a relief for the Christian to know that Christ is covered all over with my sins, your sins, the sins of the world. Do you see that he stands entirely in your place today so that you can stand entirely in his? He stands in your place so you can stand in his. Stand in his, not only forgiven, but also an heir with an inheritance to receive the power of the Holy Spirit to live out his life in your world. See, we have faith that his worthiness poured out on the cross has accomplished Something to make us worthy in His presence. See, when you transfer your foundation to Him, we become people who inherit His foundation, which, by the way, is unshakable because He is the victorious, risen Son of God. Do you stand there today? Do you stand in that reality today? If not, we encourage you to believe the gospel. Believe the gospel afresh. Hear the words of the gospel anew. Jesus Christ in your place and you in his. Hear those words again today. Believe the gospel afresh. And when you do, what it does is it leads us forward. A couple things about where faith leads us. Luke doesn't waste any ink. As a part of his story, the second volume is Acts. And throughout that story, you see a picture of God's family expanding from Jews to the nations. Gentiles are now included in the people of God and the acts. The Spirit of God comes into their lives. And here in Luke 7, he adds in this story about what kind of people are really embracing this upside-down kingdom. They are not people like you would think. And part of where faith in Jesus will take us is into a new family that includes people from all walks of life. It crosses boundaries of socioeconomic class, race, gender, preference on all kinds of levels, generations. See, faith leads us into a new family and it takes faith to be a part of that family because it's not an easy task. But the question this morning is, do you see yourself as being invited into a family that is God's? Or do you see other people different than you coming into a church that is yours? You see the difference? I'm part of God's family and all are welcome. Or this is my church and you're different, you don't fit. What's your posture? Gospel calls us to have a posture of openness to all. The kid that might damage my reputation. The person who is difficult to love. They're a family in Christ. The second thing here is we see that this story shows us that faith will lead us to trusting in the power of Jesus' words. The centurion gets that there is no need for Jesus to come in and touch his servant. There is no need for a special ritual. All he needs is for Jesus to say the word, and it will be. 
He trusts the word of God. He says it's powerful to affect change. One of the ways I know whether or not I am trusting the power of the word of God to affect change in my life is how much time do I give to hearing it and listening to it and sitting with it and letting it speak into my life. Do we make space for the words of Jesus to speak healing, gracious, truth-telling, rebuking, correcting, and training words? Let it have its power in your life. And the last thing, the final bit of the story that I think is so crucial is this, that, that, that trusting in Jesus, that faith in Jesus will lead us to new hearts for others. Now the initial need, the initial request is this guy comes to Jesus, the centurion says, I need you to help my servant, right? But what's going on here? Is this just a self-serving thing? Where it's like, it's just cheaper to not have to buy a new servant, so could you just repair my broken one? Is that what's going on? I don't think so because the text says he cared for him greatly. Like there's a love. It was his, his, like his bro. They were, they were friends, I think. And so he cares for him and he moves out in faith for the sake of someone else he cares for. What's so striking to me is that the master, the centurion, becomes the servant to the servant. He gets underneath him to lift him up. He goes across boundaries to lift up his servant. Do you see that? See, sometimes we just, we, we go, oh, I'm good with God. I stand in his place and he in mine. Like, let's end in prayer and go home. I'm done. But the real story of faith, if you have substantial faith in Jesus, if you're really directed at him, he will lead you to have a new heart for others. He will move you to be moved by the other because faith in him moves us to serve, to be on mission for the sake of others to know God's grace. And we ought to be asking ourselves, do I actually need to trust Jesus for the well-being of others in my life? Do I even have other people on my mind? So will you ask God this week to grow your dependence on Him in your effort to care for others? Because the more we step out and care for people in our lives, the more relevant the power of God is in our lives. You see, when we're just offering prayer requests for me and my status quo, and would you pray for my dog? He's been like having dietary issues, we really need that fixed, or, you know, that's just myopic. But when, when we actually invest ourselves in the brokenhearted, in the people who need to be loved and cared for, which, by the way, I think is everyone, when we're there walking with people, all of a sudden, I need the power of God in my life. Prayer changes at that point. So what we're going to do now is we're going to move towards the table. We're going to take communion. We're going to worship together. And as we move towards the table to receive communion, it's a time to remember, friends, that the true master has become servant of all. And that our healing, our rescue, isn't just for us, it's for the world. And as you take the bread, would you remember this morning that his body given for you makes you a part of a new family. As you take the cup this morning, would you remember that his life has been offered in service of others? To drink the cup means to join in his mission every bit as, it, every bit as much as it means to be healed by his mission. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your great grace, that on the merit of your grace we can expect the power of God to come into our lives, to set us right, and to move us out for the sake of the world. 
Lord Jesus, as we come to your table, would you stretch us and open our hearts and minds to hear the ways that you're calling us to trust you, to let you be the foundation, to orient ourselves around you, to be led out in the love of others. We need you and we need to nourish ourselves afresh on the truth and the tangible reality that you have given your life for us. You've raised it up again. You've sent your spirit and dwells us and empowers us and you'll come again to set all things right. In the meantime, let us walk in faith, trusting you each step of the way in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you come and Receive the bread and the cup and hold on to them. We're going to take them together as a family in just a minute.